As the story develops, if you'll go to 2 Samuel 16, David is fleeing from his son Absalom. Ziba sees an opportunity. You know, some people are very shrewd to seize opportunities to promote themselves. And so it says, when David was a little past the top of the hill, but to the top of the mountain, this is the Mount of Olives, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Does this sound familiar? We remember Abigail. The king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son, Mephibosheth? Ziba said to the king, indeed, he's staying in Jerusalem, for he said today, the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. That was an absolute lie. The young heir of the family of Saul that he had ripped off and robbed before, he robs again. The king said to Ziba, here all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. You know, some people can be very eloquent when they're lying. Some people are masters of speaking deception. So David gives everything that belongs to Mephibosheth, to Ziba. The battle goes on. And as the story develops, if you'll move with me to 2 Samuel 19, the revolt is put down. Absalom is killed. David returns to Jerusalem. And verse 24 says, Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. How do you show loyalty when you're crippled? For him, it was to put everything in life on hold and to pray. And there's no doubt in my mind that these outward evidences of his grief over the one person in the world who picked him up, who showed him kindness, who showed mercy, who became an example to him, who was not only his king, but his brother and his friend. Every day that Absalom came to the king's table, a place that he had no right to be, across the table sat unwashed, unshaved, putrid, pus leaking from the wounds of his ankles, saying nothing. I had an incident recently where a guy broke my trust. And when he was confronted about it, he acknowledged it. 
And I just looked at him. I didn't say a thing. I just looked at him. He told me a few days later, I have never been so beaten or rebuked as I was by your silence. Mephibosheth got his point across. Verse 25, so it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king. The king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Can you imagine having to give this answer? He answered, my lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because in case you forgot, your servant is lame. I'm crippled. It's not easy for me to do things. Some people live with physical and some with spiritual, emotional, crippling, and life is hard every day. I said at the beginning of this conference, I'll try not to blow your ears out. <coughs> Excuse me. Sometimes I get a clogged throat. It's the enemy. That this conference was dedicated to Kurt and Sherry Johnson. Every day of Sherry's life, every day, every minute is a struggle, a battle. And I'm sure they have their moments, but I've never heard a complaint come from the lips of either one. You know, Kurt probably has not had a good night of sleep in years. Year after year, day after day, hour after hour. Cheerful, thankful, blessed. What a ministry they've had just by the example they set. <clears throat> Your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my Lord, the King. But my Lord, the King is like an angel of God. Therefore do what's right in your own eyes. For all your fathers, all my father's house were but dead men before my Lord, the King. And yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. What gratitude, what appreciation, what humility. Therefore, what right do I have that I should still cry anymore to the king? What kind of a man was he when he came to David? Why would you show any consideration to a dead dog like me? What kind of a man is he now? I did my best. I tried my hardest. I've been cheated again. I've been lied again, about again. I've been slandered again. I can handle it. You do what you see fit to do. Verse 29, so the king said to him, why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, you and Ziba divide the land. Now, why would David allow Ziba anything? Because he was an honorable man. Honorable men are honorable men even 
to this honorable man. He had previously given his word and his word was that Zebul would have the land. And as the scriptures tell us, blessed is the man who vows to his own hurt and keeps his word. And so David divides the land between the two and Mephibosheth said, oh, thank you so much. I'll at least have something I can live on. Mephibosheth said to the king, rather let him take it all. Let him take it all in as much as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. The man that David made out of Mephibosheth didn't need anything else. He had discovered and realized that there is something worth more than any possession on the face of the earth. And that's the possession of your own soul. When you are the master of your own house, when you are the master in your own soul, what more do you need? What is your greatest weapon? You know, I told you about the last man standing, the no bolt action Mauser rifle. It's not the tool you have, it's the man behind the tool. And when you recognize and when we recognize that our soul is our kingdom, and when we care for and tend that kingdom, and we rule over that kingdom under the authority of our Savior who is seated at the right hand of the Father, we have it all. What else do we need? You and I may lose everything we have in the days ahead. Everything. As one expert put it, we are facing a perfect storm on top of a perfect storm on top of a perfect storm. We are looking at the potential perfect storm of a world war on top of a perfect storm of total and complete economic collapse on top of the perfect storm of civil war in the United States. And they could all three happen at the same time. We may lose everything. We may lose friends, we may lose family, which is far, far worse than losing our own lives. And we may face pain and difficulty and sorrow and hardship in the future like we have never seen before. But if you're holding the reins of your own soul, if you're in command of yourself, that's what Jesus was. What made him the unique man that he was? He had nothing. And yet he commanded respect and he commanded reverence because he was the master of himself. And that's the kind of people that we need to be. And I have to say with the Apostle Paul, not as though I had already attained, neither am I already perfect, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, and that's everything from this moment past. Looking forward to what lies ahead, the kingdom of God and his glory. I keep pressing on to the high calling that I have in Christ. And that needs to drive us all. God is not so concerned with what we make of our life. 
God is not concerned with our success. God is concerned with the kingdom of the heart. When Jesus spoke in the Beatitudes, blessedness, blessed are those. Just turn to it. Too important not to be refreshed. Matthew chapter 5. You know, sometimes the greatest message is the one that I never planned to give. Matthew 5, 1 says, Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. When he is seated, his disciples came to him in the ancient world. When a rabbi got ready to teach, he would sit down. We stand up. We do it the opposite. But when the rabbi sat down, that meant it's time for class. And notice that he, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Their, 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 you know, their eyes light up, their ears perk up. They're going, hey, he's getting ready to speak. Let's, let's gather around. And how, how wonderful it must have been to be of that little band that started out so different. Jesus purposely chose men who could not get along with each other unless they were loyal to him. They were so diverse. They were so different. You got a taxpayer who colluded with the Romans and you've got a member of the Sicarii, Simon the Zealot, who always carried a dagger so that he could kill political targets. How would they ever get along? You've got John who's a hothead and Peter who's a loudmouth. Can you imagine putting a loudmouth and a hothead together and having him get along? You've got Andrew, and all he does is just go bring people to Jesus. That's his, the story of his life. Everybody knows about Peter. Everybody knows about John. We tend to forget Andrew, who was just humble, simple. He's just, all he needed to do, come, and, come meet this guy. Come and see Jesus. Jesus opened his mouth, mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word used for poverty here is the lowest word for poverty, the most extreme word. There are two different words. This one is, I have to watch out for these people sitting at the front table. Tahas. <laughs> it's, uh, what do they call it? Onoma, poetic word. In other words, it means what it sounds like. Tahas. In the ancient world, they would spit on the poor. This is absolute, total poverty. When we see ourselves as having nothing except the grace of God, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they'll receive the grace that is offered. Blessed are those who mourn. Do you have a heavy heart this morning? Do you have a heavy heart because in looking at these examples, you see yourself falling short? That's good. They should be comforted. Blessed are the meek. You know what meekness is? Power under control. When you come to the point of meekness, you are beginning to learn to command your own kingdom. They shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
By the way, Jesus promised to the disciples in the upper room. He told them that if they obeyed him, I will manifest myself to them. Could I ask you a question? Answer it privately in your own soul. When's the last time you saw Jesus move in your life? Think about it. If you haven't seen it, if you haven't had one of those moments where you go, wow, that was God. That was Christ right there. Just reach down into my life, maybe because he brought you into contact with someone that you were able to comfort, maybe because he brought someone to you. Somehow the circumstances work together in ways that you could never have planned or arranged, and it's just one of those what we call a God moment. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. Here's one to carry with you in the days ahead. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't it amazing that Jesus began his first public message telling us how to be blessed? Teaching us the way that we can reign in our own life. So Mephibosheth becomes a man becomes a giant, becomes a king. Now, where he was cringing, where he was self-deprecating, now he stands on his crippled feet like a giant, and he looks at the world, and he sees all that he's lost, and he contrasts it with all that he's gained. And what he lost was nothing what he gained was everything. He's become a great man. We should all aim at such a goal. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 15, the final contrast that we have to look at and can only do it, of course, quickly. The contrast between Ahithophel and Hushai. Ahithophel is the wise man who became a fool and Hushai is the second fiddle who become who became the first and the best. David had two counselors. First Chronicles 27.33 records the two together. One was Ahithophel, the other Hushai, and they were David's trusted counselors. Ahithophel was greater. Second Samuel 16.23 tells us that the advice of Ahithophel which he gave in those days was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. In other words, when he spoke, it was like God speaking. He was trusted. He was a friend to David. After David's sin with Bathsheba, Bathsheba, Ahithophel rejected David and became the counselor to Absalom. Notice 2 Samuel 15 and verse 12. <coughs> Absalom has taken over the city. His forces have caused David and his mighty men to flee. By the way, uh, David's personal bodyguard was made up of Cherethites and Pelethites. An interesting story by itself. They were Philistines. David fought against the Philistines. 
when the Cherethites and the Pelethites, a clan, the, the Philistines had come from Crete, uh, there had been a mass migration of what they called the Sea People in 1200 BC. That was back, by the way, in the days of Shamgar, the judge. Uh, one verse is dedicated to Shamgar, and yet when we put it together with history, we realize that this was the very time that these Sea People, these people that later became known as the uh, Philistines were swarming the country in that great migration of those sea people. And uh, I don't know where I was going with that, but at any rate, here we are. That's <laughs> terrible when you lose your mind. It'll come back to me. So Absalom drives David and his bodyguard, that's what I was touching on, these courageous warrior people, and why would his enemies become his most trusted bodyguard? Because of the honor they had for him. He saw the warriors that they were, they saw the leader that he was, and it was a perfect match, what you might call a pretty massive God moment in the life of David. So Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city from Gilah, while he was uh, offering sacrifices and the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Verse 17 says that the king went out with all the people after him. He stopped at the outskirts of the city and his servants passed before him, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, all the Gittites. Gittites from where? Gath, who else was from Gath? Samson, uh, sorry, Goliath. When Goliath was slain by David, these guys were there. Somewhere along the line, they switched allegiance and dedicated themselves to David. So Ahithophel joins the revolt. If you'll drop down to verse 31, then someone told David saying, Ahithophel, is among the conspirators with Absalom. David said, O oh Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. In other words, we're in trouble. The wisest man in the kingdom is now going to be giving counsel to my revolutionary son who has just taken over the city. God help us is in effect what David is saying. And then it so happened. Every time you read that verse, just read the plan of God. The providence of God. The timing of God. It happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God. By the way, what happened just on the other side? We just read about it. Zeba meets him with donkeys, with bread, with wine, with everything that he needs. Whenever you are in one of those swarm moments, you know what I'm talking about? When it's like everything is happening too fast, you're trying to deal with one thing after another, and it's like you're just completely overwhelmed, I'll guarantee you two things are going to happen. God is going to send you someone to support you, and the enemy is going to send somebody to distract you. And so it just so happened in verse 32 when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshiped God. Imagine worshiping God at a moment like this. There are some scholars that believe that when it says he worshiped God, this is where he wrote Psalm 23. 
be pretty fitting, wouldn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I can't lack. And then he talks about being anointed again. As he worshiped God, there was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head, signs of mourning and grief. And David said to him, if you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. Hushai is an old man. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant, then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. What did David just pray when he heard that Ahithophel was with? Up there in verse 31, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And right then, Hushai shows up. And David sends Hushai back into the city. He does exactly what David tells him to do. He goes to Absalom and says, as I was loyal to your father, I'll be loyal to you. I will serve you. And Absalom obviously thinks, okay, I've got Ahithophel and I've also got Hushai. I've got two of the most wise men in the, in the kingdom. I'm set. Ahithophel is an example of a wise man who became a fool. Hushai is an example of a wise man who became wiser still and greater still. Why would Hushai remain loyal and Ahithophel betray David? If you look on page 20, you've got it all there in front of you. I've done all the work for you. But at least take advantage of it. In 1 Samuel 11, 3 and 2 Samuel 23, 34, we learn that Bathsheba's father, Eliam, was one of David's mighty men. We've read that. We also learn in 2 Samuel 23, 34 that Eliam's father was Ahithophel, which makes Bathsheba Ahithophel's granddaughter. We also learn in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 39 that Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was also one of the mighty men of David. He and her father are mighty men. Ahithophel, his counselor, is her grandfather. You ever had somebody betray you? Because David did betray Ahithophel. David betrayed Uriah. And what you and I can do when someone betrays us is we can write them off. We can even turn against them. That's what Ahithophel did. So that in essence, what we're saying is if they are going to lie and deceive and be crooked, I'll just do the same. I'll repay evil with evil. I'll lower myself to their level. I'll do unto them as they have done unto me. That is the command, isn't it? And that's what Ahithophel did. He wanted vengeance. He wanted to see David die. He wanted to see blood on the ground for the hurt that had been done to him through his granddaughter. As the conspiracy continued to develop. Ahithophel asked for counsel. I'm sorry, 
Absalom asked for counsel from Ahithophel and then from Hushai, and Ahithophel gives the right answer. You can read the story. Time's running out, I'm sorry. And Ahithophel says, go after him quick. Go after him now. The forces were scattered, they were fleeing. They had little in supplies. Absalom says to Hushai, what do you think? He said, your father's a warrior. Right now he's mad. He's like a bear in a thicket. He's like bees in a beehive. Better wait. God didn't turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. He turned Ahithophel into a fool. And Absalom and his men took the advice of Hushai. And I just want to read you one last little verse, if I can find it here in my notes. Let's turn to chapter 17, verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he knew it was over. He saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city, and put his household in order and hanged himself, and he died. And Hushai became the head counselor and an honored man and a respected man. Here's the contrast. Objectivity versus subjectivity. When do we become subject or subjective? Well, the, the idea of the subject, what is the subject? I'm the center of it all. It's all about me. I am the subject of the story, the incident, Whatever's going on, I'm the subject. Or you can choose not to be the subject, you can choose to be the object. The object is on the receiving end. The subject is the main actor. But when we move it into the area of the mind and our thoughts and our mentality, subjectivity, as I already pointed out, we filter everything through how it affects me. It's all about how I feel in the training over the last 40 or 50 years of this nation, teaching people to be victims. We have stressed to people, taught people, emphasized to people. It's all about how we feel. How does this make you feel? And you know what? Feelings are a personal matter. When you lay all your feelings out on the table, when it's all about how it affects you, when you have to make sure everyone knows, oh, you can't use that word, it hurts my feelings. When you say that, I feel bad. It shows that we're living our lives 
subjectively. Everything that happens is about me. Everything is about how I feel. Everything that I see out there in the world is filtered through the lens of my feelings. And we become subjective. And so Ahithophel is hurt by David. And no doubt before that happened, he looked at David objectively and saw a man who like all men was weak and a man who like all men failed and a man who like all men fell down and yet he admired and honored David for the man that he was. From the time that he came out of the sheep fields to the throne in the palace the man who was the national hero, the man that songs were written about, the man that became a legend in his own time. And he admired him. And he was objective. You know, if you're looking for a perfect mate, you're never going to find him. If you're looking for a perfect friend, you're never going to find him. But if you're looking for a friend that you can be a friend to, see, once again, it's, oh, this person gives me what I want. That's not what it's about. You don't look for the right person. You be the right person. And otherwise, it's all about me. It's all about how I feel. And you will never, ever see the world, life, reality as it is. My father was not a student of the Bible a great deal as when I was young, but he was a student of reality. And he used to drive into our heads. It is not about how you feel. How you feel is not the issue. What you like is not the issue. Reality is the issue. And reality has a way of catching up with us somewhere along the line in life. And if we have deluded ourselves for too long, if we have been a pretender for too long, if we have developed a persona for too long, it's one of the reasons someone wanted to know, how come I don't want people to look at me and, and say that that guy's a preacher? Because, number one, most preachers look like sissies. <laughs> Honestly, they look like they've never had a callus on their hand. They look like they've never been in a fight. You know? And it's not that we have to be a macho guy. That's not, it's, it's just that we live in reality. And a second reason is I've had opportunities where, well, I was in a guy's house in Australia. This will shock you. Probably some of you, some of you will cheer. That's okay. I was sitting and talking to the guy. He knew nothing about me. He happened to be a horseman. We're talking about horses. And uh, he threw in a few expletives. And I threw a couple back at him. And then someone said, oh, you've already met our pastor. And he goes, Boom. He said, oh, I'm so sorry for what I said. And I said, I've heard it all. And I've probably said it all. And then he was trying to apologize. And he said, well, gosh, if you weren't a pastor, I'd offer you a beer. And I said, don't let that stop you. 
So I sat there and had a beer together with a guy. If he'd have looked at me and said, oh, that guy looks like a preacher, I'd have never had an open door with him. So we don't try to develop this aura or persona. Some people live their whole lives pretending to be something they're not. I just want to be who I am. And I know I'm rough cut. And I know that, you know, I was raised in a harsh school. I don't want to pretend to be anything. What you see is what you get. I had another incident where I was sitting with a group of people that were among the elites. And they're ordering Chardonnay and Paratois or whatever the hell they were drinking. <laughs> and I said, I'll have a beer. And they all went, <gasps> like I just threw up on the table or something. And I just, this was in Houston, by the way. I just looked at him and I said, folks, I'm from Arkansas. And what you see is what you get. I'm not going to try to be anything that I'm not. Let's be real. Let's just be real. Let's be genuine. It doesn't mean you have to be the crudest that you can be. It doesn't mean you have to go out of your way to offend people. It just means that we want to be real. I don't want people to pretend to me to be what they're not. The guy that was throwing out the harsh language, I didn't want him to feel like, oh, I never should have said that. Just, just be yourself. Just be real. Why? Because that's objectivity. Let me tell you a little bit about objectivity. When we talk about objective, subjective, let me see where I'm at here. I hate notes. <laughs> I really do. They never show up where they're supposed to. You ever have that problem, Dan? Objectivity is something Jesus spoke of. In John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance. That's subjectivity. How it appears to you. Judge with righteous judgment. To be objective is the ability to separate yourself from what's going on around you. To become, as it were, an onlooker. I'm an onlooker on the stage of life. I'm not, it's not my part to play right now. Here is a person who's going through difficulty. Here's a person with a broken heart. There is a friend that's loyal, somebody that I can trust. These are just objective facts. And one of the most difficult things for us to do is when we have the opportunity to enter into the life of someone else who has a broken heart is to get them to think objectively again. Because subjectivity kills you. It is a killer. Separate yourself, take a few steps back and look at the facts. Now here's the problem. We live in a generation where people have sold their souls to subjectivity. We have a whole wide swath of our generation who have been brainwashed 
You can set the facts in front of them. You can show them the proof. They all say, follow the science, and then they defy science. They all say, believe in the experts, and anyone with one ounce of common sense would know the experts have gone insane. And these people believe with all their heart that they're right, even when reality proves them wrong. And you know what? You can't change their mind. You probably have had discussions with people, maybe even arguments with people, where you have tried to set the facts in front of them. You can't do it. They won't see it. You can set the facts right there in front of them. They can look at it and say, well, I still believe what I believe. And it's going to kill our nation. You know, when men train for battle, and I'm speaking from things men have told me, I've never been there. I wanted to drop out of high school and join the military, and unfortunately I had a dad who had been a training officer in World War II, and he, people often ask me, they say, you look like you've been in the military. I said, I was, <laughs> under my dad. He said, no, you're not gonna, you're not gonna drop out of school if they call you, then you go, my number was number five. Remember when they had the lottery? Number five. I said, I'm gone. I'm going to go. And then something strange happened. I was 16 at the time. I'd just become a believer. I skipped a year of school. He wouldn't let me skip school go, to go to the military, but I skipped a year of school to go to the Amazon jungle. And down there, God got a hold of my heart in a very interesting way, almost killed me. And he said... I have a mission for you. I have a message that I want you to carry to the world. And I came back from that and finished my year of high school and went straight into Bible school because now I knew the plan for my life. But when men are trained to go into combat and kill, you know what they have to learn to do? Navy SEALs and Special Forces people call it switching on and switching off. I gotta switch on, I gotta go into combat, I need to switch on. I need to become a lethal machine. And they can't think about when their buddy gets a bullet through the head. Bucky O'Neill on the battlefield at San Juan Hill believed that a leader led by example, and therefore all his men were down behind a stone wall with the guys at the top of San Juan Hill shooting their Mausers at them. They were better armed, by the way. They were using that 98 Mauser that uh, Louis Arbuck spoke of while our guys were using lever action 3030s, most of them. And as Bucky O'Neill walked back and forth, his men who loved him, go read their names on the monument, at the courthouse. They loved him, they admired him, they respected him, and they begged him to get down. One of those bullets are gonna hit you. And he was speaking to one of the men, I believe he even gave the guy his rifle because the guy either didn't have a rifle or, or his rifle was malfunctioning. And they begged him to get down and he said, there's never been a Spanish bullet made that can take me out. And he turned on his heel and a bullet hit him in the mouth and went out the back of his head and he was dead. 
but he was switched on. It wasn't about how he felt. It was about doing the job at hand. That's objectivity. Objectivity wins the fight. Objectivity solves the problem. When we're wrapped up in feeling and we're facing a life problem, a complex situation, uh, a heartbreaking detail, not just soldiers, first responders. When that paramedic shows up, when you go into that hospital and that nurse deals with you like you're a paperweight, they can't afford to feel. They have a job to do. They have a bone to set. They have a wound to stitch up. They have a life to save. And they don't have time. And sometimes, I used to work with the sheriff's office in Faulkner County. I'll never forget the time that I got called out. A guy had taken a young Iranian girl, beautiful little 19-year-old girl out. And uh, he had, they were going to go for a walk in the woods and have a picnic. And he raped her and then he killed her. And they called me out and we did a search. And there we found her on the ground. Clothes torn off, laying there looking up at the sky. I couldn't afford to even think about how I felt about the situation. There was a crime scene. There were things that needed to be seen. And we took care of what had to be taken care of. And I remember as I went home that night, I tried to talk to Nan about it, and she hadn't been there and hadn't seen it. Couldn't really enter into. So you know what I did? I got in the car and I drove down the road. And I bawled my eyes out. I could feel then. Because it was past. We need to learn, my friends, to be objective again. We need to learn to look at life through clear eyes. We need to be able to do the job at hand without letting how we feel about it affect us. We don't become automatons. We don't become heartless people. We just switch on and switch off. I hope that these little character studies have sharpened us all. I hope that we're going to be able to go into the battle of life this afternoon, tomorrow, go back into our homes. I hope that we can be, for us men, the men that God has called us to be. We are all called to be heroes. We are all called to be a David in our life. We are all called to be a Hushai to someone Someone who needs counsel, but that counsel cannot get wrapped up in the distraction of emotion. It may be a heart-rending situation. Deal with it with the facts. Deal with it with the truth. Deal with it as it is. See the problem as it is, and you will see the solution almost presents itself. Be wise. <laughs> Be loyal, be courageous. And I hope that the wives 
will be better wives. I hope that the grandparents will be better grandparents. I hope that each and every one of us will be the kind of friend to those around us that we've seen in these studies. That's what we're called to do. That's the reason why I chose the title Victim or Victor. The whole world wants to teach us to be victims. God wants to teach us to be victors. All of us can have courage. How? What's the enemy of courage? Just think of it. Fear. What's fear? Fear is an emotion. Fear is subjectivity. Courage is objectivity. Fear says you might get hurt. Objectivity says there's a job to be done. There's a mission that needs to be done. Don't let the enemy rob you by using something wonderful and something beautiful, feelings and emotion. As Gary Horton used to say, they're the taste buds of life. We want to feel, we want to have those emotions, but we want to be the one holding the reins. You know, if you're on a horse and a horse runs away with you, you're in real danger. That's what happens when your emotions run away with you. Now you're just sitting there going wherever they take you. We need to take the reins and take control. We need to be the ones in command. And when it's right and when it's time, we can bask in the beautiful emotion of a wonderful marriage or a good friendship, fellowship among believers. But there's a time for that and a place for that and there's a time to switch off. We switch off to the feeling, we switch on to the task at hand. This is what we have to do. We'll feel later. Right now we need a clear mind. Right now we need to be able to think. Little poem says, though man of thinking being is defined, few use the grand prerogative of mind. How few think justly of the thinking few. How many never think who think they do? Think. If you think you're beaten, you are. And if you think you dare not, you don't. If you'd like to win, but you think you can't, it's almost a cinch, you won't. Think. Think right now on the Lord's table. I hope you have one of these in front of you. All that I've said, all that we have shared together is all about this. It's all about loyalty to the Savior. It's all about gratitude for what He has done. It's all about humility before His presence. It's all about courage in accepting the task and the life that He set before us. All of these qualities come down to this. The celebration of the Lord's table. You have one of these little things and, and they're, I'll warn you ahead of time, they're dangerous because one of two things will happen as you try to peel off the top so you can get at the wafer, the wafer will fall on the ground. Or you try to peel off the top and you get the wrong top and now you have the juice open and the wafer still stuck. They are dangerous. It's kind of like a ready-made trap. But uh, work with it as best you can. And... Uh, 
Get that little wafer and hold it in your hand. And remember this. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew who would betray him. Jesus had all of the capacity of the human heart to feel betrayed, to feel alone. But he had a task at hand. And that was the salvation of our souls. Does anyone not have one of these? So on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke the bread and he handed it to the disciples. I wonder if any of them, as he was breaking that bread, remembered the day on the hillside as a little boy with five loaves and two fishes brought them forward to Jesus and those hands began to break and multiply the bread. He broke the bread and he gave it to him and he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. He's anticipating what's going to happen later that night, what's going to happen on into the day. Now, most of us don't realize they began abusing him physically as soon as they arrested him. He went through hours and hours and hours of abuse. And he said to his disciples, it's for you. This is for you. There's a task at hand. We can weep when it's time to weep. We can rejoice when it's time to rejoice. But right now there's a task at hand. They didn't understand what he was talking about. But I hope we do. This bread represents my body as you hold that in your hand. Just think of being one of those disciples and one day just putting your hand on his shoulder, linking arms with him, picking him up from sitting on the ground by the campfire. The many times they would have touched him, as John says in 1 John, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have handled with our hands. I often wonder, as John was writing that, if he broke down and cried. I touched him. I held him. And he died for me. This bread is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After he... I'm trying to be careful because I've been known to spill these. After he gave them the bread, he passed the cup. You know, in India, they do it the way the disciples did it. They have a congregation of maybe 200 people. They have one cup. And you look out there and you see people who are sick, you see people who are diseased. You see people who are defaced. And that cup goes around and it works its way through the lines of the people and they keep filling it up and it works its way around and it comes to you last. That 
that's a time to be objective. I would not dishonor those people. I have drank of the cup with lepers. What if you got leprosy? It'll be the plan of God, who cares? Would I dishonor those poor people by saying, bring me a separate cup? I was even offered, and and I have been offered the separate cup. Oh, this one's for you. I said, no. I reject a separate cup. I would drink of the cup those people drank from. Why? Because it's not about me. It's all about him. This cup is the new covenant. What is the new covenant? Here are the promises. I will be their God and they will be my people and their sins and iniquities I'll remember no more. All of that in this little cup. Yeah. This cup is the new covenant in my blood as often as you drink it. Do it in remembrance of me. I think there's only one way to take the cup. And that is as a toast to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to the God of creation, to the living word who became flesh and dwelt among us, to him who died, was buried and rose again and is coming back for us. A toast to the King. And with that, my friends, we are done. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Use the truths that we have studied in our lives. May God, the Holy Spirit, work out in us that which you have deposited as we've gathered together. Let our lives be a reflection of the heroes and the good characteristics and qualities that we've studied. We ask these things in the almighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We, by the way, have to clean up if some of you gentlemen would not mind helping us put up tables and chairs. Uh, we have to do that. If you need to go, please understand that we understand and be on your way and be blessed. Let all the praise go where it belongs.